This week is an introduction. <laughs> There's a difference between a preamble and an introduction. This actually has to do with what our fall lessons are going to be about. There's going to be several fall lessons. So today, I want to give some overarching context to the lessons. Um, and I want to start with a question. How does a spiritual community balance the diversity of people who make up the community, people with widely different life experiences and widely different needs, how does the community balance the diversity of people who make up the community and at the same time the unity of us all being part of something together? How does that happen? Because at any given time, one person's soul, one person's spiritual journey will make a high demand upon them for stillness and for quiet. Uh, and another person, at any given time, their life's demand will call them to action and to activity. And for a whole bunch of other people, there will need to be a balance of stillness and activity. One person's journey might be taking them into the wilderness, the great unraveling where we deconstruct all of our belief and practice. And when that's the case, we need a time of stillness and quietness because we're listening for a new way of being. And when you're on that part of the journey, action and activity can actually work against the well-being of the soul. Another person's journey will be highlighting a focus on healing the world being part of what Jesus talked about, salt and light, transforming the world around us. And for them, inactivity will still birth something being born into their soul. So how does a spiritual community balance togetherness and differentness? One of the things that we have learned over the years is that one side does not, size does not fit all. Cookie-cutter conformity is not an effective way to be a spiritual community, but in practical terms, how do we do it? It's another way of asking the question that we've long worked on, what does it mean? How do you work out oneness that is not sameness? Oneness that is not sameness. So I heard Michelle use uh, a metaphor some time ago uh, that I thought was helpful then, and I heard it again this week, and so I kind of want to use that as a way of thinking about these lessons, uh, about how you do togetherness and differentness, we can do it the way that a yoga class does togetherness and differentness. So in a yoga class, everybody's together, everybody's doing the same pose. But in the yoga class, the teacher will offer several ways to do the pose. Here's, here's the pose, do it this way. Now, if you've got room left, try pulling your leg like that. Or if you've got even more room left, try putting this block under your hip and then stretch that and you can extend it even further. So we are working on the pose together, each doing what we are able to do, not pressured to do what is not good for us, but providing headroom for there to be expansion when we are ready to expand. So I thought that was a great metaphor even better than the pacing metaphor that I used last week. And it's a good way of thinking about this series of lessons we're going to approach this fall. So when I was thinking about these lessons, uh, late spring and early summer, I had imagined that I might use the metaphor of the periodic table of elements. Uh, I imagined calling it uh, lessons in elemental spirituality. 
because the elements are the core building blocks that make up the spiritual life. And that was going to be the lesson. You know, these are the core elements that make up the life. I think the yoga metaphor is even better than that. So we're going to go with that. Because we learn the basic poses, but we have the flexibility to expand to whatever degree we are able and to whatever degree is good for us. The pose is good for us if we're brand new. The pose is good for us if we're long time in the practice. Stretch it this far or stretch it further. This part of your soul needs stretching. Come back to this pose on a regular basis. That part of your soul needs stretching. Come back to that pose on a regular basis. So that's what the ancient practices are. They're the things that we do to stretch our souls. And so in this series of lessons this fall, I want to broaden our understanding. If you've been around for a while, you've heard us talk about working the circle, uh, and that is going to be our starting place. That is all, will always be our starting place. But this fall, I want to kind of broaden and deepen some of our understanding of the practices that make up the circle. Well, let's begin there. That's familiar territory for us. Let's begin with the circle. I read the story uh, a couple of weeks ago about uh, a Buddhist monk who was put in charge of building or overseeing the building of uh, a new temple for their group. And this Buddhist monk said, um, when I was uh, working on tiles for the roof, she said, all I saw anywhere were roof tiles. When I was working on the flooring, all I saw anywhere I looked was flooring. Because that's what our brains do. Our brains tend to give us focus and attention on the thing that we need focus on attention for in the moment. Our brains don't see the whole world. Uh, We have a very well-developed set of skills wired into our brains that say, don't waste energy. Filter out the extraneous, unnecessary stuff. Don't see the whole world because seeing the whole world would overwhelm your brain. Just see the part that you need to focus on right now. You need prey because you need to have dinner. You need nuts because you need to get through the winter. So zero in, focus on that thing. Singular focus, wired into our brains with a tremendous upside. It is a survival strategy. We're able to navigate life because we have these filters in our heads wired right in that say, get rid of the, the non-essential, focus on the essential, survive and thrive. But filters have a downside as well. Because what filters do, you'll want to write this down, is filter. <laughs> and when they do, they filter out large swaths of truth. When filters are filtering, they're filtering out large swaths of wisdom, of course, because we're not looking for those things so we don't see them. We're not focusing on those things so we don't see them. Consequently, zoom, some part of truth goes buzzing by us and we don't capture it. Zoom, some part of wisdom goes buzzing by us and we don't access it. And that is an omission that costs us. It's an omission, the consequences of which we can't help but suffer. Our brains, by just doing what brains do, limit our perspectives. 
our brains by just doing what they do, keeping us alive and helping us thrive. They limit our stories. And stories, we have seen, impact our lives on an everyday basis. Well, that's the impetus behind working the circle. We set aside time and energy to do these ancient practices because they are, they are vision-expanding practices. What they do is they expand the story that we are able to see. They expand the truth that we are able to access. So consequently, we gain access to a larger insight, we gain access to a larger wisdom, and consequently, we live better lives. That's why we take up these ancient tools, these ancient practices, these ancient disciplines. The communal practices, for example... What, it, what those practices do for us is bump us into one another's perspectives. I have a limited perspective. You also have a limited perspective. Unless we're trapped in the worst kind of groupthink, your limited perspective is going to be different from my limited perspective. And consequently, if we take on the communal practices, we are going to, in aggregate, have access to broaden perspective because your blind spot is going to be different from my blind spot. And consequently, you are going to be able to see what I tend to miss and vice versa. And so we have access to greater truth by engaging the spiritual practices. That's why the tradition has given us a whole menu of these communal practices. Well, the same thing's true of the meditative practices. The same thing's true of the contemplative practices. Those practices tend to loosen our hold on a fixed, narrowed perspective, a fixed and narrowed truth. They tend to disentangle us from these limited visions that we have so that we have access to broader truth when it is there. We are there able to receive the broader truth when it comes floating across our horizon. We'll see some practical applications of that in the fall. The learning practices, likewise, help us stand at a higher vantage point, a vantage point from which we can see more of the horizon, more of the whole, and become less fixated on the part. We learn the tried and true wisdom of the past. We learn what wisdom seekers have been seeking for generations, and we become informed of a reality beyond our flooring seeing or our roof tile seeing limits. We see something bigger because we are exposed to a broadened horizon. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we learn history and philosophy and psychology and science because all truth is God's truth. In our community, it's why we study the Enneagram because Understanding our unique personalities uh, helps us understand where we will tend to have a limited vision and see less and helps us broaden our perspective. The same is true of the serving practices, broader truth. Serving broadens our story as well. We usually begin serving, especially in a religious context, focused on something that we have to give. And usually unconsciously, when we set out to give something, in our minds we position ourselves above those to whom we will give. I know something that the second graders don't know, so I am going to teach them what I know. 
I have access to something the poor don't have access to, so I am going to give something to the poor. But anybody who has made the serving practices part of their regular spiritual discipline understands that if you serve just a little while, pretty soon that above-below dynamic just can't hold up. Because what service and the service disciplines do, the service practices do, is very quickly shows us that we really are in this thing together. We learn as much from those we teach as they learn from us. We gain as much from those we serve as those we serve. Service is one of the best practices for us being able to internalize that truth we talk about all the time, oneness that is not sameness. So we have these ancient soul practices, like a set of yoga moves, working the circle, the essential poses, the practices that create an internal infrastructure for a healthy, healthy soul. Time-tested, ancient in application, returned to generation after generation. Our community has organized ourselves around these four practices. The reason that we stretched our budget last year to buy some of Jared's time and buy some of Beth's time was because we needed help on the communal practices and we needed help uh, organizing for the service practices. The social and, uh, and personal belonging stages of communal practices and meaningful ways to put our hands to healing the earth together, the things that we've gotten involved in with restorative justice over these last couple of years. Robin gives a lot of time and energy to helping us learn the Enneagram. I work hard to help us learn on Sundays. Jennifer does a great job helping us help one another engage contemplative practices. And she and Julie and I are meeting together to imagine how we might integrate the contemplative practices more seamlessly into our whole communal life together. So we've organized our hours and we've organized our energies and we've organized our dollars around these four categories of ancient practice. And we've tried to mirror those same patterns in age-appropriate ways for our children and for our teenagers because these, these are the essential poses for the healthy soul. But in these fall lessons, I would like to drill down a little deeper into these four quadrants to begin to imagine how we might stretch ourselves into the practices when we have more capacity, when there's more headroom available for us. Different ways that we could take up the practices. So for example, we don't often think of the communal practice or the contemplative practices this way, but Paul said this, you're going to have just as much access to the divine word if you are out among the rocks and the trees and the water, as you would have access to the divine words by looking at the ancient texts. And so this fall, we're going to look at uh, some brain science that's come to the party recently and said, hey, Paul, you were right about that. That's a thing. And the implications for the well-being of our souls. So we're going to begin to look at ways that we don't typically think of how the quadrants work out because we have a set of practices that we focus on as a community, but there's a breadth in our tradition that is available to us. But I want to begin looking at what we have been recently referring to as the NRCC curriculum. That makes up three ancient ministries 
uh, three ministries that have always been wired into healthy Christian community. Three things that Christian community does to minister to us, and three things that we participate in that ministers to the well-being of the community. That's what you hear in the announcements when we talk about, we've got a curriculum, here's part of our curriculum. The things that you're hearing in the announcements are part of that curriculum. Now, to be more accurate, it's not really our curriculum. It's actually thousands of years old. It's been the curriculum for those wanting healthy souls since there was a desire for healthy souls. And it's not limited to our Judeo-Christian heritage. It is deeply embedded in our heritage, but we by no means have sole claim to these ministries. Now, I always hesitate to use our Christian words because over time they accumulate a bunch of baggage. And over time they get kind of a toxic overtone, and sometimes the toxic overtone is all that we hear. And I'm always trying to get past the toxic overtone to find out what was the core truth, what was the vitality at the beginning, and this is another one of those. And I'm going to use the Christian words, but I'm going to anticipate you're going to have a negative response, and then we're going to dismantle the negative response. So just be prepared, that's going to happen, all right? So the names of the curricular three Christian ministries are the Christian ministry of repentance, reconciliation, and redemption. Oh God, I know you're having it. You're having that reaction right now. And if you are thinking, oh, I know what that means, I'm going to suggest maybe we don't know what that means. So please hold on. Our goal will be to rehabilitate the words because they are beautiful. There are parts of them that have gotten very ugly, and that is true. But they are beautiful words, and we're going to try and rediscover the beauty. But let's start, as we do, with broadening some context. You've seen these words before. It's been a core value of ours to go at the stuff we would sometimes prefer to avoid. It has been a core practice of ours to go at the stuff that we avoid because it just feels too big or it feels so entrenched or it evokes such volatile emotion or response that it can feel overwhelming. We go at these things because if we don't, they will kill us. Avoiding them doesn't help us heal our souls. Now, we try really hard when we go after one of these really big things not to go half-cocked. Half we try really hard to understand the thing under the thing. We try really hard to understand the context that gives energy and power to the thing and makes the thing the way that it is. Rethinking our religious tradition. Man, that's a big, daunting, overwhelming thing. And we try to give as much context as we could as we begin to unpack that. Understanding the divide between the Christian community and the LGBT community. Well, that was a big thing, so we tried to give as much context as we could to it. Uh, tr tried to enact Jesus' commandment to love one another across the divides of this hyper-polarized social and political divide that's going on. Uh, the racial issue that we, we explored last year and continue in an ongoing way to do that. Sexual violation. All of these big things are big and feel daunting, and feel overwhelming, and can often be immobilizing because they seem so enormous. And yet we go at these things. But when we do, it becomes very clear very quickly that we don't all agree on how we ought to approach things. 
And so conflict ensues. Hey, we've got a module on conflict resolution. We go at these things and it becomes very clear very quickly how big they are and how complicated they are and how demanding they are. They are. So it has been our way to break those things down into something that will push against the immobilizing, daunting fear they impose. And so we work really hard to create things that we can do here, now, small, doable. Things that we can participate in that fit into the scope of our lives so that we are not immobilized by the enormity of things into doing nothing, but instead we can help one another move forward into doing something. So we cannot solve this national school-to-prison pipeline crisis, but we can do something with these kids here in Wake County Schools where we can meet with them and help through facilitated dialogue that way. We can't solve the epidemic of violence in our whole world, but we can stand with this family who has lost a loved one to murder. We can't undo 400 years of racial inequity, but we can break out of our own racial silo, hear one another's stories, learn the history that informs the different experiences of America, and put our hand to healing the earth in ways that are here, now, small, doable. And we do that. We work really hard to make those things accessible to us so we are not immobilized. Well, I rehearse that we do that together because that's what the yoga moves are doing. They're providing for us a way to do something about the demands of a soul that needs to grow that can be so daunting and so overwhelming that we can almost be immobilized. From time to time, we get a glimpse of the life we would love to live the capacity at which we would love to function, a way of relationship that would work and we wouldn't keep recycling back through these same things. We look at that and it seems so daunting. Oh, I just can't do anything about that. But wish, lick at a promise. How would I ever get there? But what the moves are, what the practices are is a way for us to steadily move through this process and to look up one day surprised that we are living that life. The practices are, the moves are, something that we can do today so that tomorrow we will be able to do something we cannot yet do. That's what the circle is. That's what the curriculum is. That's what the four categories of practice are. That's what the three ancient ministries are. Do this thing today that you can do, and you will find that tomorrow you are able to do something that you can't do now. Do it to the degree that you are able. Stretch to the degree that you are able to stretch, and tomorrow you'll be able to be more of the person you want to be. Tomorrow, you'll be able to make a difference that you don't feel you can make today. Tomorrow, you will not be as overwhelmed by the things that overwhelm you today. That's what these ancient practices are. That's what these poses are. So, 
let's talk about the first of these ancient ministries, the Christian ministry of repentance. Now, because that word is so laden with baggage, we're not even going to use the word repentance. We're going to go back to the Greek word, and we're going to, be, we're going to try and understand the original meaning of the word. And so we're going to go back to a word you might have remember it from our lesson last fall on race. The Greek word is metanoia. Uh, you do not need to remember the word but it would be helpful to remember the concept. All right, so here's the concept. It's actually quite a simple concept. It's simple to define, not so simple to live, but it's simple to define. It means this. When your brain does what your brain does, and it begins to get focused on this and zero in on that and limit truth and limit access to a larger narrative or larger possibilities... When the habit-forming neural networks in your brain do what they do, which is a survival strategy, but in the process of doing it, suck you into a limited, even harmful way of doing life, so that you find yourself cycling through the same kinds of arguments again and again and again, so that you find yourself cycling through the same kinds of uh, craziness that seems to erupt around life again and again and again, the same kind of cycle, you know, one of the ancient uh, scriptures you've heard me um, quote it several times from the Proverbs just because I like it for its shock value. When you find that your life is like a dog returning to its vomit again and again and again and again, when you go back over that same stuff, and you do it again and again and again because your brain is fixing you into this narrative and you can't understand why you zig when you should zag. When that happens, Metanoia says, do this. Disempower those old habits in your brain and break their hold over you. Sounds easy enough so far. And then in their place, build a new set of habits, health-building habits, Life-affirming habits, that's all. Break down the old habits that are cycling you through this life you don't want to keep living and develop some new habits that will produce the life you do want to live. There it is, metanoia, a simple idea. And it would be so simple to put into practice if we just had different brains. <laughs> but we do have the brains that we have, and yet, here's what the tradition says. Even though we do, even though we've got these brains that do what they do, you can still put that word, metanoia, into practice in your life. The wisdom of the ancient spiritual tradition says just that. Yeah, you can make that substantive kind of change. And generation after generation in our tradition testifies to it because generation after generation has actually done it and said, we did this, you can do this. Now, in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about how those generations have told us to do it. These are the steps, these are the poses, these are the moves, this is what you do. And when you're ready, you stretch this far. When you're ready, you stretch out. We'll talk about the practical how-to, but I want to talk about that first one, the process of going through that depth of substantive kind of change, where this life that I can't imagine aspiring to, I can actually move toward. I want to tell you a story of what that looks like because it's not inaccessible. It is ours to have on a regular, ongoing basis. It is just built into, baked into the spiritual tradition. So I called a friend and said, tell me your story about metanoia. And she told me this story. My deeply entrenched habits, she said, have always been judging people. 
And like all ingrained habits, mine started as a survival strategy because I had a very hurtful relationship with my mother. And because I had this hurtful relationship, I had to develop this harsh judgment of her just to help me survive in my life. But as happens, she said, what began as a survival strategy expanded way beyond my mother. It became a story I told not just about her, but about the world, the whole world. And after a while, it became an instinctive response. I had this instinctive response to the mother stimuli, but I began to have that same instinctive response to all kinds of other stimuli in the world. And what I began to find myself doing is living a life of blaming other people for my pain and blaming other people for my suffering. It became my go-to way of seeing the world. Because my mother X, therefore I'm stuck here in Y. And hey, that person too, and the other one, and the other one too. She said that's what habit does. It just informs how we think and it takes over. But then she said... But over time, because of the troubles that I hit in my life and I became part of the 12-step group, one of the things that 12 steps helped me do was engage some practices that helped me become more self-aware. And I began to examine my life without focusing all of my energy on those to blame for my suffering and pain. So instead of focusing all of my thoughts and energy there, I began to focus it here. And, by the way, 12 Steps is a great distillation of the ancient wisdom around these practices. Anyway, she said, I began to see my life over time through a different lens. A bigger story gave me access to a bigger reality. And a bigger reality enabled me to begin to live a bigger life. And she said, today my life runs on such a fundamentally different story. Here's the basic outline of my new story. Other people are living just like me. They're doing their best to make it in the world, using what they've got, using what they've inherited. They're imperfect, but they're imperfect the way that I'm imperfect. And they're doing the best they can with what they've got. And that story, she said, has given me access to people that I didn't used to have access to. I get to have conversations that I didn't used to get to have. And consequently, I see truths I didn't used to see and I'm exposed to experiences that I used to miss all the time. It has been such a profound change, she said, it is very difficult for me to remember how instinctive that reactionary narrative used to be in my life. My go-to story just is no longer blaming others for my pain. It's not how my life works anymore. The practices that I did in my time in the 12 steps were things that I could do that have enabled me now to do things that I couldn't do. As a matter of fact, they've become my go-to things now was what I couldn't do at another time in my life. And it is a better life. It is made for better relationships and begin to talk about some of the things that she had experienced in her life that were now accessible because this new narrative was running her days. And I don't suffer, she said, nearly the anxiety and inner grinding that I used to suffer. She says, as a matter of fact, I've got an early warning system now in my life. Whenever I start to revert to old ways, I start to have trouble sleeping. I did not realize, she said, how much trouble sleeping was ingrained into my everyday life in the past. 
My sleep troubles were directly related to being caught up in other people's drama, other people's problem, all the blaming, all the stuff that they were doing to me and all the grinding that I did over all that bad stuff that was happening to me because what they did was bad and what their bad was doing to me and their badness was affecting my life and I wasn't sleeping. But now without that toxic mind, without that toxic story, she said, I sleep. And when I don't, I know where to look. I look for my old story starting to creep back in. The old poison, the old pain. Well, that's what this ancient ministry does. Next week we'll talk about how to work it out. But that's what this does. It changes our lives fundamentally. The life to which we aspire becomes through a series of things that we can do today that enable us to do something we, could, we couldn't do tomorrow and we look up one day often surprised that we are having this response, this reaction, this life. And that's our heritage. It's ours to have. It's the gift given us by the generations who have figured this thing out before we got here. This is how we live this Christian life, this Christian ministry of metanoia. And it's baked into our curriculum. And it's here. And it's now. It's doable. It's small enough that we can access it. Here, now, small, doable. All of these things are very practical. They're very hands-on, they're very experiential, and they're workable. So I hope that you will engage the lessons this fall, and I hope you'll engage the practices that make our souls healthy. And so, Holy Spirit, freedom and life and truth and goodness, may our spiritual journeys be built on the good news that our tradition has bequeathed us. Be it so as we follow Jesus. Amen. Well, if you